I enjoy uh, reading um, biographies and uh, history and leadership books. And one of the leadership authors I like a lot is a guy named Patrick Lencioni. I don't know if any of you are familiar with the name. He wrote a book called The Five Dysfunctions of a Team, which is probably the, the most famous or widely known of his books. But I just want to, to share something from it with you as we get started. Uh, he sums up the book in this diagram. It's a, it's a triangle pyramid. And the base of, of it, the, the baseline dysfunction of the five is an absence of trust. When team members don't trust one another, then they won't honestly share with one another. They won't get the last 10% of the truth out onto the table. And because they don't trust one another, they fear conflict. And so fear of conflict is based on absence of trust. And that leads to a lack of commitment because if you haven't gotten all of the, the opinions and the facts out on the table, you're not going to commit yourself to the decisions that are made uh, by your team. And then you're going to avoid accountability because you're not committed to those things and you won't be paying attention to the bottom line to results. And so all of those things kind of end up in an organization that's sort of stuck and, and not committed to results based on this, this lack of trust at the bottom of it all. One of the interesting things about Lencioni's books, all of them that I've discovered, he's got this, this bit about conflict in them. And uh, he believes that you need to be able to conflict well if you're going to do well. You, you need to be able to have healthy conflict in order to succeed as an organization. And the reason I bring all of that up is that in today's passage in John chapter 8, we're going to see some really unhealthy conflict. And it's unhealthy primarily because one side isn't listening to the other. Have you ever been in a situation like that? Nah, it's never happened to any of us, right? Where somebody isn't really listening, they're just waiting, right? You know, they, they give you the impression that they're listening, maybe, but they're really not. They're just waiting for their opportunity to say what they want to say, and they're not listening, really. Paul Turnier, the Swiss psychologist and author, coined a phrase, dialogues of the deaf. Dialogues of the deaf. To, to describe what's happening when people aren't really listening to one another, they're just trying to talk. And, and they miss one another entirely. We're going to see that in the passage today. As Jesus tries to explain spiritual truth to people who just don't want to hear it. So let's take a look at John chapter 8. If you need a Bible, uh, we've got some ushers that are going to bring some up front. Just catch, uh, catch Bob's eye if, if you need one. Um, and, you know, feel free to grab one off the table next time if you need one. Uh, as you come in the door, if you don't own one, take one home with you. We've got lots of them. But uh, in our Bible, we're in, in John chapter 8, and we're going to start at verse 31, and that's on page 746 in the Bibles that we have, page 746. Let's take a look at it, starting at verse 31 of John chapter 8. <clears throat> to the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we're Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall, not, shall be set free? Jesus replied, 
Very truly, I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now, a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So, if the son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you are looking for a way to kill me because you have no room for my word. I'm telling you what I have seen in the Father's presence, and you are doing what you have heard from your father. Abraham is our father, they answered. If you were Abraham's children, said Jesus, then you would do what Abraham did. As it is, you're looking for a way to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do such things. You're doing the works of your own father. We are not illegitimate children, they protested. The only father we have is God himself. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I have come here from God. I have not come on my own. God sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? If I'm telling the truth, why don't you believe me? Whoever belongs to God hears what God says. The reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. The Jews answered him, Aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and demon-possessed? I am not possessed by a demon, said Jesus, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. I'm not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Very truly, I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. At this, they exclaimed, now we know that you are demon-possessed. Abraham died, and so did the prophets. Yet you say that whoever obeys your word will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died, and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? Jesus replied, if I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My Father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I'd be a liar like you. But I do know him and obey his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You're not yet 50 years old, they said to him. And you've seen Abraham? Very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. At this, they picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. Unhealthy conflict. Uh, they weren't listening. They were just kind of waiting to say what they wanted to say. Let's take a look at the escalating conflict. First, how it goes. Jesus makes this statement in verses 31 and 32. If you hold to my teaching, you're really my disciples. Then you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. He's talking here about spiritual realities. They miss that. He's talking about spiritual realities, realities that he is revealing as the one sent by God to reveal spiritual truth to people and then to pay the penalty for our sin. And so last week I talked about my friend Oscar in Guatemala 
who taught me a lot about Guatemala because that's his homeland. He knows it like the back of his hand. And Jesus comes from heaven, and he knows heaven, and he knows spiritual reality. He's uniquely qualified to teach it, but these people didn't want to hear it. So Jesus is trying to convey spiritual realities, and he says, the truth will set you free. What's that mean? You know, we're free people, live in a free country. We're not enslaved to anything. But Jesus is talking about spiritual freedom here. He's talking about freedom from sin's power and sin's penalty. We're not stuck in our sin in Christ. We are freed from the power of sin. We can have victory over our sin. Have you ever been enslaved to a sin? Ever feel stuck in it like you just can't get out of it? Maybe it's some sort of addiction. Maybe it's alcohol or drugs or sex or pornography or power trips. Uh, all sorts of things that we find ourselves sometimes enslaved to and trapped in. Sometimes it's behaviors we just kind of grew up thinking are normal because it's what we saw around us and we've just not known any other way. And we don't realize how harmful those things are to ourselves and to our relationships. But in Christ, we can find freedom from the power of sin over us. That sin in Christ doesn't define you anymore. It's not your identity any longer. So we're set free from the power of sin, and we're set free from the penalty of sin as well in Christ. We can't atone for our sins. We can't make up for what we have done. Um, we can't ever be good enough. But the good news is that Christ paid the penalty for our sin. What he cried out from the cross when he said, it is finished, in the Greek that word is tetelestai, which it was used in that day uh, on invoices that were paid the uh, person to whom the debt was owed would write across it, tetelestai, meaning paid in full. And that's what Jesus did on the cross for us. He took our sin on himself, paid it in full. It was finished. What we couldn't pay, he paid for us. And when we fail him, we can trust, whoa, not in a sound system, but we can trust in what he has done for us that it is finished, it is final, and we can get up again. We're not stuck in sin's power or its penalty. So what Jesus offers us is freedom, spiritual freedom, freedom from sin's power and its penalty. So Jesus lays out this spiritual truth, and his hearers promptly miss the point. In verse 33, they say, we're Abraham's descendants. We've never been slaves of anyone. How can you say we shall be set free? Ever have that happen to you? You say something and someone takes some little bit of it and, and throws it back in your face because they're offended with you and, and they want to major on, on the word you used or the way you said it and miss the point of the truth that you're trying to say. So he speaks to them here and they take offense. And they miss the point and they start talking without having really listened. How do we know? 
they're doing that? How do we know they go for the win instead of for trying to understand? They escalate the conflict. That's how we know. By the way, one of the best things that you can say when someone's doing that is you can just pause and say, help me understand. Help me understand what, what you just said. Flesh that out for me. Help me understand what you just did. Uh, they may do something very hurtful. You, you can say, help me understand that. And it, it draws them out instead of saying, you rascal. You know, shame on you. you. Help me understand. And, and it allows you to begin to engage and, and to dialogue, to show them that you really do want to listen and understand. But these people don't do that. They begin the escalation first with distorted answers. They're more interested in defending what their position is than in understanding what Jesus is trying to say. So they get casual with the facts. Uh, they begin to present half-truths. And half-truths are lies. Uh, if it's not all of the truth, uh, then you're misrepresenting the truth. And they're doing that here. Verse 33, they say, we've never been slaves of anyone. What's wrong with that argument? There's this 400-year period of their history they're kind of overlooking, right? 400 years in bondage in Egypt. That's longer than our country has been around. That's a long time they were slaves. We've never been slaves to anyone. Or in verse 41, they say, the only father we have is God himself. But in verse 38, they just said, Abraham is our father. And so they're just getting a little footloose with the facts. And then they ramp it up further with personal attack. They try to discredit Jesus. In verse 41, they say, we're not illegitimate children. What are they getting at here? Well, your parents weren't married when your mom was expecting, right? So they're, they're trying to discredit Jesus by suggesting that he was born of immorality. Or in verse 48, they say, well, you know, correct us if we're wrong here, but aren't you a Samaritan and demon-possessed? I mean, that's really a great little line. Discredit the presenter, and you can ignore what he's presenting. That's the idea that they're trying to do. So they start off with distorted answers. They ramp it up to personal attack, and, uh, and they, they try to get out of what Jesus is saying here. That's how the conflict escalates. But why does it go that way? Jesus says it goes that way because they have no room for his word. No room for his teaching. No room for the spiritual truth that he's trying to convey. It's the same word that is used in verse 37 that was used in verse 31 when he said, if you hold to my teaching, literally my word, you'll be, you'll, uh, be my disciples. Indeed, you'll know the truth and it'll set you free. We do that by holding to his word or his teaching. And Jesus says in verse 37, you got no room for my word. you got no room for my teaching. What they're interested in is religion and rule keeping. Uh, they can get pretty good at that. They can feel like they're in control. Instead of surrendering to a God who is far bigger, who wants to transform their lives from the inside out, they want to cling to the externals that they can master instead of surrendering to the one who is the master. 
They want to box him up in their traditions rather than to allow him to change their lives. We find a lot of people like that today, don't we? People who are happy to relegate God to one corner of their life, to do their religious thing, to show up once a week, to be satisfied with religious forms, rather than to give him control of their life and allow him to change them from the inside out. So Jesus says, you're, you're conflicting with me because you have no room for what I'm trying to say. And then he goes on to say that they're not listening. Verse 43, they're not getting what he's saying because they're not able to hear what he says. And they're not able to hear because they would rather talk than listen. When the mouth is engaged, the ears are not. It's been pointed out that God gave us one mouth and two ears, so we would be wise to listen twice as much as we speak. Verse 47, Jesus also says the reason you don't hear is that you don't belong to God. So in verse 43, he says you're not able to hear. In verse 47, he says you don't belong to God. That's why they're more interested in arguing than in understanding spiritual truth. If they belonged to God, they'd be open to the truth Jesus brings. The problem isn't the ears, the problem's the heart. They don't belong to God. And so they don't want to hear what Jesus has to say. Our minds will go where our hearts tell them to. Have you noticed that? We can change our thinking in a flash based on what we want. Our minds will go where our hearts tell them to. And a heart that doesn't belong to God will tell the mind to come up with objections to spiritual truth. And it will also tell the ears to stop listening to it. So if we want to fix the problem, we need to start with the heart. The ultimate reason Jesus says that they're not listening is in verse 44, and that is that while they claim Abraham as their father, Jesus tells them the real problem is they're under bondage, that their father is really the devil, and they're just living out the reality of that truth. They were holding on to the trappings of religion and missing out on a relationship with God in Christ. Our lives will evidence who we really belong to. If we belong to Jesus, we'll do what he said in verse 31. We'll hold to his teaching and we'll know the truth and the truth will make us free. And in experiencing that freedom, we'll gain victory over sin. And if we don't, we may cling to religious appearances, but our heart won't be open to spiritual reality. And we'll do whatever we need to do in order to keep him at arm's length. So that's the escalating conflict and why it happens. Let's look at the truth that Jesus was trying to convey here. Let's look at four spiritual realities that I believe show up in this passage. Spiritual reality number one, real freedom is spiritual. Real freedom is spiritual. Verses 31 to 36. Jesus comes from heaven to reveal heavenly truth, spiritual reality. And the slavery that he's talking about here isn't physical slavery. 
It's spiritual slavery. It's bondage to Satan. And Jesus offers to set us free from that. Spiritual reality number two is that real freedom makes us children of God. Real freedom makes us children of God, not children of the devil, verse 44. Last week, we took a little peek back at the prologue, the first 18 verses of John's gospel. And if we look back at that again and and look at verse 12, it tells us that to those who believed in him, he gave the right to become children of God. Did you notice the word is become? We're not born that way. We're not born children of God. We're, we're born in slavery to sin. It is our fallen nature showing itself. You don't have to teach a two-year-old uh, to resist you, to, to insist on his own way. It's a part of who we are. But we can become children of God through trusting in Christ. We can become adopted into God's family, members of a family with a father who loves us unconditionally. Maybe you've never had a father like that. But I would urge you, don't limit God the Father based on what you grew up thinking fathers were like. A couple days ago, a dear friend of mine passed away. Uh, He was raised in the most dysfunctional family you could imagine. He didn't know who his father was. And his stepfather was harsh and never communicated love to him. Just a a horrible, dysfunctional home that he was raised in. The woman that he fell in love with and and married was also raised in in a family that that had a harsh father. And so here these two people, wounded people, come together, but they found Christ. And in Christ... They found the love of a father, a heavenly father, who was nothing like their earthly father. And they learned from his word what that father was like. And they grew to trust him and to love him and to base their family, their home, on that kind of unconditional love. And they had a healthy and happy home because they trusted in a father who was unlike the fathers they had known growing up. God is the father that all fathers should be emulating. In Ephesians chapter 3, Paul has a prayer for the Ephesians, and, and he gives praise to the father from whom all families on earth are named. And, and the, the footnote in your Bible will say uh, something about Uh, giving praise to the Father after whom every father in earth derives his name, his his function. We are to look like him. So often we fall so far short of that. But that's our fault. That's not his. Don't project on him what you may have learned growing up. Spiritual reality number two, real freedom makes us children of a loving heavenly father. Spiritual reality number three, real freedom breaks sin's dominion over us. Verse 34 says, we're slaves to sin. It's our master. Apart from Christ, it owns us. But in Christ, we get another master. We get Jesus himself. We are owned by another. We belong to him. 
In Romans chapter 6, Paul speaks about the symbolism of baptism, where our old self is buried with Christ. And, and so when you see someone baptized, when you see someone immersed, what, what is being enacted in front of you is that this person is saying, the old me is dead, let's bury that old person. And so the pastor takes and plunges him into the water as though he's plunging him into his grave and lifts him back up to say, there is a new person here, a new person who is in union with Christ. So when we're baptized, we are joined with Christ in death and in resurrection. That's the idea behind Romans chapter 6. There's a new me that's united with Christ. And I want to read to you verses 5 through 14 of Romans chapter 6. And I think you can follow along. He says this, after he's just kind of described that about baptism. He says, if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body that ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life. And offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master, because you're not under the law, but under grace. Spiritual reality number three, real freedom breaks sin's dominion over us. In Christ, we have been raised to new life. We are united with him. Spiritual reality number four, real freedom can only be given by God, verse 58. Now, last week, we saw how Jesus can speak about spiritual realities because he comes from heaven. He represents the Father to us. And we saw last week one of the seven I am statements that Jesus makes in the Gospel of John. I promised you a slide. Here it is. If you want to jot them down, there they are. Uh, I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world, I am the door of the sheep, I am the good shepherd, I am the resurrection and the life, I am the way, the truth, and the life, I am the true vine. Those realities about who Jesus is. But underneath those realities, those first two words stand out. I am. I am, and he is bringing us back to Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, at the burning bush, when uh, Moses says to God, if they ask me, who shall I say, if they ask me who sent you, what shall I say? Who shall I say sent me? And God says what? 
I am that I am. Tell them I am has sent me to you. Jesus is saying here, I am. I am the great I am. Uh, the Greek is ego me, and we see that again and again. We saw Jesus dropping hints of that last week as we looked at an earlier section of John chapter 8 in verse 12, where he gave that statement, you know, I am the, um, the, the light of the world. Uh, in verse 18, he also says, I am, let me find, I am one who testifies for myself. Uh, I am ego me Again, verse 24, he does it again. I told you that you would die in your sins if you don't believe that I am. Uh, verse 28, he does it again. He says, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. Dropping these hints, but this time he is making it abundantly clear in verse 58. Before Abraham was, I am. Not I was, not I'm older than Abraham, but before Abraham was, I am because I am the great I am. Did they get the point? What do they do in verse 59? They pick up stones to stone him. Why? Blasphemy. He's claiming to be God. He is. He is claiming to be God because he is. And here's the point. No one can ultimately deal with sin but God. We can't atone for it ourselves. One of the songs we sang this morning speaks about that. We can't atone for our own sins. We can only trust the one who paid it in full for us. That's why John focuses more on who Jesus is than what Jesus did. It all comes back to that, who Jesus is. You're probably saying, Ken, you're stuck. You just keep talking about it week after week, who Jesus is. Yeah, I know. I can't help it. It's because John's doing it. I'm just trying to show you what John is saying here. Verse 53, who do you think you are? And he tells him, I am. Last week, it was verse 25, who are you? He said, just what I've been trying to tell you from the beginning. And in verse 58, he makes it abundantly clear he's God. He's the only one who can forgive sin. He's the only one who can give life. So have you found life? in him. Some people just want to kind of hang on to those religious forms to let them feel that they're still in control. Give up the control. Turn it over to the one who can take care of your sin once and for all. Some people are stuck in sin, caught in bondage to sin, not realizing that in Christ we have a new master and the solution is to be found in union with him. And all of us can recognize Jesus for who he is and thank him for what he's done and live victorious lives in union with him. If you have put your trust in him for your salvation, then what we're about to do with these little cups that have a little wafer of bread and, and some juice in them, that's for you. If you're uncertain of where you stand with him this morning, we invite you just to skip this part. I would love to talk to you further about how you can know you've got a personal relationship with God, that you're forgiven, that you've got a father in heaven who loves you and an eternal home with him. Love to talk to you about that. And, and maybe today's the day you want to just pray that and say, 
Lord Jesus, thank you for taking my sin on yourself. I recognize I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. Would you be that Savior for me? Apply what you did on that cross to my account. Cancel my debt. Pay that in full. And I'll just live for you forever. Maybe today's the day you want to do that. We're going to take the uh, bread and the juice, remembering his body and his blood, both given for us to pay the price for our sin. The Apostle Paul encourages us to examine our hearts before we come to this table, so we're just going to take a moment for quiet prayer and uh, just do business with God right where you sit. And uh, after just a, a moment of that, I'll, I'll close in prayer. Father, thank you that when we become aware of our sin, we can speak it, admit it, agree with you on it, and find forgiveness right then and there. So, Father, we don't want to try to withhold that from you. We know you know us better than we know ourselves, and we might fool others and sometimes fool ourselves. We can't fool you. So, Father, I just pray, put your finger on anything in our lives that needs to be addressed. Help us simply to turn from it and to turn to you in Christ. Find the forgiveness that comes from the one who paid it in full. So as we take this bread and this cup, I pray that you would cause us to remember and to celebrate what Jesus did for us. And then I pray that you would send us on our way rejoicing in what you have done, eager to share such good news with others also. In Jesus' name, amen. We're invited to the Lord's table, not because we're worthy in ourselves, but because we are clothed in Christ's righteousness. Don't allow the weakness of your faith or your failings in the Christian life to keep you from this table. It's given to us because of our weaknesses, because of our failures, in order to increase our faith as we remember what Jesus has done for us and we live in union with him. So when you are ready, come. The worship team is going to lead us in singing. So when you're ready, come.